0: Okay, so good afternoon again, and thank you very much for um, coming to this panel, and I'd like to thank the Hudson Institute for inviting me to moderate uh, this very, very timely panel, indeed. Uh, Our speakers today are, first of all, the host, uh, Michael Pregent, who is a senior fellow at at the Hudson Institute here. He's a senior Middle East analyst, a former adjunct lecturer for the College of International Security Affairs, and a visiting fellow at the Institute for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. He has over 25 years of experience working in security and reconciliation issues in the Middle East and North Africa and Southwest Asia with the US military, the Department of Defense, and the Department of State, as well as the private sector. Uh, Right next to him is Ubay Shah Bandar. He's a fellow in New America's International Security Program. He's a former Defense Intelligence Officer and Department of Defense Foreign Affairs Specialist. He has operated throughout multiple war zones and still does go two war zones in the Middle East and uh, South Asia. He has served as a strategic analyst during General Petrae's surge in Iraq, as a senior civilian advisor to the Combined Forces in Afghanistan, and in 2014, he served as an advisor during the UN-hosted Syria peace talks in Geneva. My friend Bassem Barabandi is Syrian, and he's the Director of External Relations uh, and co-founder of People Demand Change, AMEN. He has, a, or he's originally from Deir Ezzor in Syria and has worked in the diplomatic civil service of the Syrian government for 14 years before leaving the Syrian embassy here in Washington DC in 2013 to co-found people demand change. Previously as a diplomat, Bassam had numerous postings including being the first secretary at the embassy of Syria in Washington, DC, the head of political affairs at the Syrian embassy in Beijing, China. And uh, he had a post at the Syrian government's UN mission in New York. Throughout his time as a diplomat, he worked with the World Bank, the US Treasury Department, and as a liaison to the US Congress. Thank you very much for being here. These are very rich bias, and trust me, I tried to actually make it short, but you guys are very experienced. So this panel indeed is a very timely panel because as you all know, since you follow Syria, the past few weeks were very intense, both in terms of military actions on the ground inside Syria, but also in terms of the policy of major powers towards Syria and also of regional powers towards Syria. Uh, one of the latest develops, developments was actually this morning with a Turkish convoy going into uh, northwestern in Syria as the deadline for um, the Turkish-Russian arrangement in Idlib uh, draws very close in October 15. So I'll actually start uh, immediately by um, asking Ubay a, a question because um, I saw that you were in Syria a month ago on the border with Turkey, and you actually, uh, back then, announced that um, Bashar al-Assad had actually given his approval to the use, potential use, of chlorine gas. So first of all, what is the situation in this part of Syria right now? And again, according to you, how sustainable is the the security arrangement that was actually uh, concluded in Idlib?
1: Well, thank you so much. And the first thing we have to remember is that War is a serious affair, it is unforgiving, it is cold and it is unsentimental, especially in the Middle East. And what we have right now, at least in Northern Syria and Northeast Syria, is a brewing proxy war that is currently uh, in in a, a situation where it's on pause, but it's very tenuous. We have an agreement between Turkey and Russia um, in Idlib, northwestern Syria, that prevented an Assad regime assault against that province that could have led up to one million Syrians being displaced from their homes and forced into Turkey and possibly into Europe, it is an agreement that is currently in play where the Turkish government is doing its role in trying to co-op the remaining uh, jihadist elements in Idlib. In turn, the Russians are serving as a guarantor for their auxiliary forces of the Assad regime and preventing the Assad regime from not only launching a ground assault against Idlib and against the Syrian people, but also preventing the Assad regime from launching a chlorine gas attack. Might I add that the U.S. role here has actually been very significant. We saw the Syrians, uh, the U.S. special envoy for Syria and the special envoy for Syrian engagement in a round of talks in Ankara with their Turkish counterparts, and also meetings in Geneva between the national security advisor, Bolton, where he took the Russians to task and essentially gave them an ultimatum that you cannot allow the Assad regime to use chlorine gas. At the time, the United States, according to press reports, had intelligence that Bashar al-Assad had greenlit the use of chlorine gas against civilians in Idlib. That did not happen. The combination of uh, Turkish pressure and U.S. pressure seems to be working. But it is a very tenuous pause. It is a very tenuous situation that could easily break out into open warfare and open conflict at any given point. We have just so many regional powers and world powers that are all in a relatively small, confined space in Syria, from northern Syria to eastern Syria. At some point, something is got is going to give. This is the Middle East, okay? The Middle East is the essentially the ultimate fighting championship of geopolitical struggles. It is a cage match. And what we're seeing these days is not, only, it's not just a struggle for power and for resources, but for survival. The sectarian nature of the fight in Syria has really risen to the forefront. And now we are seeing a struggle between Washington and Russia for supremacy in Syria and even in Iraq. And with Iran playing also a very important role, big question on what Moscow can do to reign in the Iranians. Does Moscow have influence over Qasem Soleimani, over the Iranian Revolutionary Guards and their proxies? We have Afghan fighters that have been trained by Iran. You have Lebanese Hezbollah supported by the Iranian Re- uh, Revolutionary Guards throughout Syria. Does Moscow have any leverage over Iran to uh, prevent these forces from attacking American soldiers that are based in Al-Tanf in eastern Syria? or to prevent the IRGC from launching a renewed assault against the uh, um, uh, Turkish-supported areas in the Euphrates Shield area in northern Syria or in Idlib? That's the million-dollar question. So right now, we are in a very precarious moment in Syria, where any large-scale assault is currently on pause. That's not going to last long. We'll have to see on whether or not the Turkish-US-Russian agreement on Idlib holds um, you know holds or is sustainable in the long term but the middle east is really no place for optimists
0: well let me take it from there and actually ask you michael about the the u.s policy in the syrian file that actually has witnessed a lot um changes mission creep and also decision from leaving but actually to staying to adding advisors and to changing um, the targets and the objectives of the U.S. in Syria, <clears throat> how do you see this uh, U.S. policy change and what would be its very concrete consequences on the ground?
2: So so the U.S. policy, if you look at the last 18, 18 months, has, has went from we're only in Syria to defeat ISIS, we've almost defeated ISIS, so we're going to leave. And we started seeing our proxies, which are the most tenuous proxy relationship with a, with a power in Syria, the SDF and the YPG start to hedge, hedge their bets. Start to look at who do we negotiate with? Do we negotiate with Russia and Iran? Do we negotiate with Damascus? Because uh, the U.S. seems to be wavering, and that's when uh, security officials within the administration said, we can't, "We can't start putting that message out now that we're leaving because ISIS is defeated because ISIS has simply moved to the Al Qaeda model, and like Iraq and Syria, we're now seeing." now these, these pockets, where ISIS continues to, uh, to, to exist, start to expand, start to thrive. We've seen an increase in attacks in Iraq and Syria. So that language that we're somewhere just to defeat ISIS is bad. So then that language changes. Changes to where we're there to defeat ISIS and also to push Iran out. And we're going to do that, we're not gonna do that militarily. We're gonna go out of our way not to target our Kurds force militias. We're gonna go out of our way not to target uh, Russians, unless you're the Wagner Group and you're creeping on a U.S. base. But then we have the sarin gas attack. So the president authorizes cruise missile attacks, and uh, security officials in the United States, especially in the Department of Defense, go out of their way to say that no, cor- no coordination was done with Russia. There was no attempt to at target any IRGC force assets on the ground. Then you have an Israeli five to six hour, hour air campaign where the Israelis go in and basically set back any. Um, Static infrastructure that Qasem Soleimani had set up in Syria. I mean these these missile factories, these rocket factories and That created an opportunity that was squandered when Qasem Soleimani looked to The Russian presence in Syria and said what are you doing here if you're not here to protect us against Israeli airstrikes? So we change our 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 language there. Uh, It's good to hear now that we've dropped it down to chlorine gas, because initially it was sarin gas, and those can't be the messages either. Assad, Putin, Iran, whatever you do in Idlib, just don't use sarin gas. Well, that means you can use chlorine gas. That means you can use white phosphorus. That means you can use area denial weapons. You can bombard a city like they've done in the past with with rockets that aren't precision-guided rockets. They're there to take out city blocks. Uh, barrel bombs, all those things. So now it's stepped down to chlorine gas. When the U.S. position and the international community's position, if you believe the 77 letters of condemnation for Assad dropping barrel bombs, should be there should be no use of military weapons on civilians. You cannot exit a population of 3.2 million people in Idlib for an estimated 10,000 jihadists. You can't do that, even though we did that in Mosul. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to do that kind of stuff. So now the policy is. Ambassador Jeffries get in there and shore up our allies, make sure the YPG and the SDF know that we're here to stay, know that we're a solid partner, have them halt all conversations with the regime and Russia on trading oil for status, tra- trading oil for leverage. And um, and now we have, in the last you know, week, we have Iran launching ballistic missiles over Iraqi airspace to target ISIS fighters responsible for the attack on an IRGC parade in Iran that fly over American forces. Some of the rockets land in Iraq, some of the rockets land in Abu Kamal, and they're saying they're there to to target ISIS. We are continuing to allow Iran to develop missile um, capabilities by attacking uh, anti-Iran Kurdish forces in Iraq, and now starting to let them do it in in. Syria and why I say let them do it. If you look at the latest statement from Ambassador Jeffries and Joe Rayburn, it is the United States seeks a political solution in Syria. There will be no military solution. Yet the benchmarks are kick Iran out, stop IRC goods force proxies, stop weapons of mass destruction, um, you know, keep this regime from killing its people. And I have not yet seen a political conversation or a conference that has resulted in any of that, anything that's gotten worse. So now we're in a situation where we have to protect American forces operating in Syria and Iraq from not ISIS, but from IRGC Quds Force militias, from IRGC Quds Force rockets and missiles. And we're seeing that in Syria. So when we look at, at Syria and we continue to have these dialogues where we can talk about how to fix Syria, as long as we ignore what Iran is doing, as long as we ignore the militias, as long as we we do these things. So the language has gotten better. We now have a kill ISIS, counter Iran policy. But I think you should be able to say we, we support a political uh, a solution. However, you know, smart power includes both political and military and the military capabilities will will be to, to, to defend American troops and to keep Iran from doing this. But now you have in the last 72 hours, not only, I mean, now you have S-300s going into the hands of, the Assad regime. And S-300s are an air defense asset that's used to shoot down Israeli airstrikes, shoot down American uh, aircraft. And this would actually stop what Israel is doing to stop the offensive capability that ISIS force is preparing, not to shore up Assad, but to threaten Israel, to destabilize uh, the Levant. And so there is a military component to anything we have to do in Syria, and it is to actually do – to counter what our foes are doing militarily. We have to look at those things, so we have to look at this language, and you always have to look to see how a strategic message resonates with your target audience on the ground. And everybody's, I would imagine if they had a bubble above their head, would there would be a bunch of question marks going it.
0: So Bassem, not only as a Syrian, but as a, as a former Syrian diplomat and now very immersed in this. In this. Uh, file, Um, Michael just mentioned the strategic message to the audience. Now, what does this change in US foreign policy and actually message send to the regime, and how would you expect it to act, especially in Idlib?
3: Nothing. Uh, <laughs> any message is just a message, any statement is just a statement. The regime from 2011 to today, they never felt the threat from the United States of international community. The only thing they do statement or sanctioning, but this doesn't touch the core of the regime. Uh, we saw in 2013 when Assad uh, used the chemical weapons in Ghouta and Obama was very strong statement at red lines. All the, the leaders or the main leaders of the regime they run away to Beirut or to Latakia because they know this is serious and they cannot face it. They run away. Uh, so when when the message of uh, U.S. yesterday saying that we want to have political solution and we will not use the force to fight against Iran and you just go for economic sanction that Syria have already economic sanction from 19. Uh, 83 when they tried to blow up one of the Israeli jets in, in London. So already Syria have all kinds of sanctions. So to say we would add more sanctions doesn't add more to, to the calculations. Number one. Number two, the Iranian and Iranian militia in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, the feeling they are winner. Today, they're acting as a winner, and they are deducting the rule of the games. Like today in the Monitor, they mentioned that Qasem Soleimani with Sadr, with Hassan Nasrallah. They sit in Beirut to decide who will be the prime minister in Iraq. If this story is true, that shows how much United States is weak. If Qasem Soleimani and Hassan Nasrallah decide the prime minister of Iraq, that we already have the Iranian empire goes from Tehran to Beirut, to Damascus, through the Mediterranean. So so this happening already is happening. But for me as a Syrian now, uh, I will not talk about politics. You are more senior than me and you understand the foreign policy than me. I talk about the Syrian from inside Syria. What all this means. All the statement that you, you, we saw from the administration in the last, let's say, early this year, they never mentioned the Syrian people. They never addressed the Syrian people. I mean, the Syrian people are the allies of the United States to fight Iran and Daesh and Hezbollah. They are killing us every day, so you have natural allies to work with them to fight back uh, your enemies, and that was completely excluded. When we saw uh, the demonstration in Idlib in the last two weeks, they were asking the people. They were went to street to say we don't need Assad, we don't need Jabhat al-Nusra, HTS, we don't need Daesh, we don't need Iran. So this is the people who you count on and you have to save. But there is no message to them. How can we support you? How can we help you? And here I think. All the U.S. programs to Syria should re- recalculate recalculated to see are we helping the right people at the right time. A lot of money goes to Syria, and I don't think this money reached to these people. They reached to people in Gaziantep or other places, but they didn't reach to their natural allies or the people that the, the policy based on helping them uh, to save the civilian. We saw many times where the civilian, the normal people in Idlib, they were just went to areas controlled by Jabhat al-Nusra and enforced them to leave, to kick them out. So we can defeat the enemies from inside. We don't need Geneva meetings to tell how we can take uh, Daesh out, or we take Jabhat al-Nusra out, or Hezbollah out. But this momentum from the people is very cheap, is very legitimate, is very legal to be supported rather than just have another meeting in Geneva or Turkey or Suchi to decide for the people what you want, how can we do, how we share the cake of Syria. So this one part. Second part, what we are doing here, mainly the Syrian-American community, we were able to to uh, to push for Caesar Act. Um, it's signed by, it's passed the House and the Senate, hopefully it will be signed by the president this week, uh, which add, Give the administration very good tool, legal tool, to make sanctioning on the Syrian central bank. So, based of the big fight against Iran, economy is the word. If we, the administration now in November, they would have more sanction on selling oil to Iran. They have more sanctioning on Iranian <coughs> economic affairs, and I think the Syrian Act or Caesar Bill will give the administration more tools in order to squeeze the money channelled into Syria or out of Syria in support of Iran. Um, we have another group that, another bill which will be signed again hopefully this week, Syrian Support Group or Syrian uh, Consulting Group, whatever it's called, that to draw strategy from both Republican and Democrats, uh, Syrian Study Group. Uh, so they will help the administration to draw some kind of, of things, uh, strategy, what we want from Syria as United States, how, what what our strategy, what our rules
0: there. Before I go back to Obey on the strategic developments on the ground, Michael, you had something? Yeah, to- I just
3: wanted to say
2: something about, about the, uh, the strategy to get uh, – you know, we talked about the Syrian people. And one of the things that I'm, the Ambassador Jeffrey's memo says is that it um, will push the UN to allow all Syrians, even those that are out of the country, to vote for the next government. Well, that would not include Assad, right? There's no way 80 percent of the population is going to vote for him. They're going to vote against him. So they're going to be disallowed to vote unless you're physically in the country, and it will be up to the UN to insist that it is that the diaspora has a chance to, chance to vote as well. To this, to this, Qasem Soleimani Nasrallah thing, Nasrallah has more influence on Murtadha al than than most. Muhtar al-Sadr wants to build himself like Nasrallah. So when you when you hear why is it that Qasem Soleimani is in in Beirut talking to Nasrallah, to to decide the next prime minister is because of, of al al sada You've got to get him on board because you've already got Fatah on board. You've already got state of law on board. You've already got Fatah. Why do I bring up Iraq? Because Iraq is why we have a problem in Syria. <clears throat> Iraq is why we have Iraqi militias in Syria. Iraq is why Qasem Soleimani moves forces out of Syria into al and Abu Kamal just, just on the Iraqi side, to, to keep it from being struck by Israeli aircraft because Iraq is safe haven because the United States is there. So this this new narrative today, coming out of Washington, D.C., is that all is well in Iraq again. We have a Sunni Speaker of the COR, we have a moderate Shia Prime Minister, and we have a Kurdish President. Well, it all sounds great until you go one layer deeper. That Sunni uh, Speaker of the House is a pro-Iranian Sunni who has taken the position that Iraq will not honor sanctions against Iran. and that money, again, fuels everything that Iran is doing to destabilize Syria. Um, the the president is Baham Saleh. He's a technocrat. He is a smart guy. He speaks English. He talked to us well. He will also not push back against anything the the muscle in Baghdad this pro-Iran will ask him to do. And then, of course, Abed Abdul Medhi, the new prime minister, is from the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq. He is a Khomeinist. He's not a Sistani guy. He is an Iran guy, but he's, he's not a, a firebrand. He is a well-spoken, educated guy in France and London that will brief well to the United States, but will still not stand in the way of anything Iran wants to do, and he doesn't want the job. He does not want the job. So why is Iraq important? Iraq is important because Lebanon's important. Iraq is important because Syria is important. And everything that Qasem Soleimani wants to do, he's able to do through these three countries with the U.S. again, you can't be in a better position if you're an IRGC British force militia. They are winning. Um, they now have S-300s. Those S-300s that Qassem Soleimani was was wondering why they weren't protecting his operations are now in the hands of Assad, which means they are now, you will do this. You will now uh, fire S-300s against the Israelis, and Russia will say it's not us. It's them. It's not us. Um, and that's, that's an issue. So this this destabilizing Syria is not just what's happening in Syria, it is fueled by what's happening in Iraq. Iran continues to use Iraq as a shell company to skirt U.S. sanctions against Iran. And it's all connected. I just wanted to say that based on what you said. Sorry to And here we back
3: to the importance of Idlib and the importance of the Jazeera region. Um, Idlib, it's the last geographical area in Syria that has three million Syrians that's still under, it's not under Assad control. If there will be a deal, that realistic deal, that keep that area out of Assad control and keep it clean from the terrorists, all kind of terrorists, all kind of Islamists. Uh, for me, all the Syrian militia Islamists in Syria, they act in very in a bad way, close to Nusra, if they are not close to Daesh. So this should be clean. If we find that equation, the balance that we can Keep Assad and Iran away from controlling that pocket, or it's a huge area uh, Idlib, and we find way by the Syrian, by the locals, supporting by Turkey, by the United States, by the EU, to clean even the Islamists or the terrorists from that area. We are, we can start to build a model for day after Assad to show what can we do. That model already exists in the Jazeera. Now, SDF, UIG, the people say they are PKK, they are not PKK, it's ideological, communist, whatever, which is, which is not the case what we are doing now. The America, they have opportunity today in that area to, to invest in civil society, in the, in the locals themselves, again, to, to create a model that tells the Syrian, other Syrian, that we can create normal model, not authoritarian model, by Syrian themselves, by supporting from the West, Uh, both in Idlib and in in the Jazeera region.
0: Actually, I'll go back to this um, question of reconstruction also and what's going to happen from now. But let me go back to the darkest part of, and go back to Ubay, who's not the darkest part, but the question is actually about, because what Michael and and, um, Bassem have been saying actually make us ask the classic question about, you know, any local conflict that got internationalized. Today, what, um, or let me formulate it differently, uh, how much control does uh, each of those powers have on their allies and proxies on the ground? Like, and so how much does, control does Russia has on the Assad regime when it comes to the use of chemical weapons? How much control does Turkey have on their rebel factions on the ground in Idlib in, in or elsewhere? Same question for Iran, the same question for uh, Iraq and its militias.
1: Well, from my perspective, I think you need a Sunni solution and a Sunni partner to the transnational terror threat and to essentially the issue of Sunni fundamentalism, um, particularly when it comes to global jihadism. And when I went into northern Syria earlier uh, this summer, I saw what has been working in the Sunni Arab majority areas, where now you have essentially no-fly zone from Azaz, Afrin, into the northern Aleppo countryside, into Al-Bab, into areas where the US military isn't on the ground. But you now have uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis just announced just the other day a joint Turkish US military training program where US forces, the Turkish forces are going to be on the ground patrolling. This is the type of joint mechanism that works. And when you don't have Assad regime or Russian airstrikes, when you don't have artillery strikes, when you don't have the, the persist, persistent threat of chemical weapon strikes, people are able to live a normal life. People Cities thrive. Uh, People who've been displaced from other parts of Syria can rebuild new lives. And that's what works. And if you if we rewind the clock a little bit, this is what could have been in place if uh, the, the negotiations in 2015, 2016 uh, between the US, where uh, then-Vice President Biden was discussing a possible no-fly zone that Turkey wanted to, wanted to implement, in northern Syria. That didn't happen, and we are where we are today. I mean, it's interesting to look back at President Obama's old foreign policy motto, you know, don't do stupid stuff, although he didn't say stuff. Unfortunately for the Syrian people, the Syria policy shop of the Obama administration became a vertible fertilizer factory. And we are today in, in large parts because the type of stability in the Sunni Arab areas uh, where you don't have Assad regime control could have been achieved years ago without, the, uh, without with, at a much less cost. Now, let's look at what's happening in Idlib. Idlib is going to be very difficult. In uh, the Azaz al-Bab corridor, the Turkish military has been able to co-opt Sunni militias. Many of these militias, some of them are more, some of them are Islamists, some of them are more nationalists, but at the end of the day, these are forces that don't have any transnational terror ambitions. You don't have any transnational terror plots um, being uh, f- are, are no longer being fomented in this part of Syria. In Idlib, it's a different story where you do have a small, now, listen, remember, um, HTS the, the, and Al-Qaeda affiliates in Idlib only control a small percentage But they are very much a powerful force. Now the question is, can Turkey ultimately separate these elements, these transnational terror elements, from the from the populace, and can they uh, co-opt them, or can they force them to lay down their heavy arms? And that is a central feature of the deal that's been negotiated between Turkey, the U.S., and Russia. So all eyes now are: what's going to happen next? Can the the co-option of Sunni Arab forces and rebel groups by Turkey, I'm putting them under a a common umbrella under the National Army project in the Euphrates Shield area, the Al Bab Al Zaz corridor, can that be replicated successfully in Idlib? That's going to be a, it's going to be a very difficult task. Uh, but so we're going to, we're going to have to wait and see. And then let's look at what's happening in Al-Tanf. Your average American voter, your average American citizen, probably has never heard of Al-Tanf. Al-Tanf, Syria, is in a very rural part of the uh, southeastern desert, very close to the tri-border Jordanian-Syrian-Iraqi border. But this is potentially could be the new Fulda gap of the Middle East, where you have over a 1,000 American soldiers, Marines, and special forces operators who are supporting a Sunni Arab militia group that protects it around a 55 kilometer area. This is an area that Iranian militias have attempted to attack. This is an area where Russian Wagner military contractors, as, as Michael pointed out, attempted to attack in, in, the, in that vicinity, unsuccessfully might I add, in February. This is an area where your average American voter doesn't realize that the, na- in the, in the next wider regional war could break out. And this is an area that the US controls, that potentially could be the last stumbling block or the last speed bump to the Iranian highway of control that spans from Tehran to Baghdad to Damascus and to Beirut. So will the United States maintain its military presence in Al-Tanf indefinitely? And how do we deal with the forever war in Syria? The objective stated by the United States has been a sustained defeat of al Dash, the Daesh terror group. But what does that really mean? I was there along with Michael in, uh, in Iraq in 2007, 2008, where US military alongside the, uh, the Sunni Sahwa and, and some Iraqi forces defeated Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Anbar and in the Al Jazeera area. More, more or less, they were able to eventually regroup. Why? Because they had a small, a, a small sector of Al-Qaeda in Iraq was able to maintain safe haven in the eastern Syrian deserts. That was in 2008, 2009. Many argue under the tutelage of the Assad regime, or at least that the Assad regime and the Syrian military intelligence was aware that Al-Qaeda in Iraq maintained a small safe haven in eastern Syria. So that's the thing. What we have to remember is that no matter your degree of your military success, no matter how many Daesh or Al-Qaeda you kill on the ground, ultimately they can regroup reform and expand if they maintain a safe haven anywhere that allows them a line of supply a line of communication and a, the ability to reform and regroup you so don't uh, provide them the people with alternative that's exactly yeah that's what you're
3: saying you've, you need,
1: you've got should, to separate them from the
0: people
2: I can answer your question
0: <laughs> <process>. <laughs> so before i go back to my asset um Bassem, you had something to say but i also have a question yeah, just, for you yeah, just, and just yeah, you know just okay. something very quick you know, about, about the question about the people. same thing before yeah, your um, he, in his uh, response, Obey said that he it's, didn't answer it's a question. pause. Yeah,
2: he needed, he didn't, a, first answer first of all, he
0: didn't answer the question. Second of all, at the beginning. So Michael will do that. So yeah. Thank you, Michael. But My actually, he said, um, he said that it's a pause, that Islip, Idlib is a pause. Cool. So what is the long-term um, objective? How, what is Idlib going to be eventually if it's not a battlefield where you will have a humanitarian crisis?
3: Yeah, but look, Idlib is, is being prescribed or described in the media as if it's a Turkish problem. Idlib is not Turkish problem. Idlib, first of all, all the military groups who came to Idlib, they came from Damascus, from Ghouta, from Homs, from Daraa, and all were facilitated by Russians, all of them. Russians make the reconciliation, make the deal. They protect them. They, even the UN, protect the convoys of all these fighters from all over Syria to Daraa, to Idlib. So today, to mention that this story is Turkish problem is not fair. It's It's Russia problem. They know what they did. They knew from everyone what they did this is number one number two to 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 let Turkey alone negotiate with Russia about the 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 faith or the the, or the the future of it it will not make too much sense because at the end of the day Turkey will protect its own national interest but that doesn't mean national interest of Turkey is similar to the Europe European, they are really worried from Italy because they believe that if this new movement of refugees go to, to Europe, it will destroy the democracy in Europe. There will more right wing will run and win in Europe. The changes in Europe is much, it's much bigger and dangerous than the, the refugees crisis. It's more about their own political system. And they believe that this is the Russian way of doing business. They want to destroy Europe from inside, destabilize Europe from inside using this wave of refugees. So today when we talk about Idlib, I, I don't think we should, I don't think Turkey should make the, the deal by itself with the Russian, Because if Russians will take Idlib, ultimately they, they they don't hide that Idlib should come back to the regime. They make it many times. The Syrian foreign minister regime, yesterday he was saying Idlib come, will come back. So the, the, the end game is very clear for the Russians. And if the end game is clear for the Russians, that means we will have the wave of refugees sooner or later. How to block this? The international community should work, coordinate with Turkey, or Turkey should coordinate with the international community to have one stand vis-a-vis Russia. Rather than serving Russia, Turkish interests, it should serve the whole interest. And that will reflect on the Syrian in Idlib not to be number one move from their area, or we have a massacre. So this is about Idlib.
0: So, Micah, you you also had a comment on this, but I would like you, after commenting on this, I'd like you to – you mentioned the S-300 defense system that Russia actually delivered to Syria. I want to know from you what are now – I mean, if the system is actually activated, what are the options, especially of Israel, but also what are the options of the U.S. and European powers who threaten that they would strike again if Assad uses chemical weapons?
2: The design here, when we talk about Russia, we ask the question, can Russia stop what Iran is doing in Syria. The Russians are looking to distance themselves from any actions the Assad regime takes uh, with, with Iran as, as a partner, by Russia being able to say, those are those Assad's um, We had a meeting in Berlin where we met with the Russian counterparts, and we tried to come up with uh, five or six things we could agree on, and we were heavy on the Iran part. What can you do to help us with Iran? The ranch was, uh can't do anything to help you with Iran. It's not our decision. It's, it's Assad's decision that they're there. So there's already that distancing. So the S-300s are now being given to Assad. The Russians are training up uh, Syrian crews on how not to shoot down Russian aircraft with them because uh, we just we saw that. And my, argu- my, my warning to Russia would be, and also Sputnik since you're covering this, is don't give Assad this capability because he's going to shoot down more Russian aircraft than he is Israeli aircraft. The Israelis have trained on how to defeat this system. The US has trained on how to defeat this system. NATO has trained on how to defeat this system. The S 300 will be overwhelmed because it's not like Syria is getting multiple batteries where they can shoot down 100 cruise missiles. The tactic for the S 300 is to launch two rockets per incoming cruise missile. Mm -hmm. We overwhelm them. The 100 cruise missiles that we launched would have overwhelmed what Russia had on the ground. And you literally have seconds if you're a, a radar technician or you're actually in that targeting cell. You have seconds to decide whether that cruise missile is on target, or this cruise missile is going here, and you literally are having to make decisions. It's not an auto- automatic process, but it will be used to deter future Israeli attacks on the IUGC press force offensive capability that they're building. Um, just one thing I wanted to say, ask you a question. We, we talked about – how many – how many Syrians have been on this terrorist list that Assad put out? Three million. Three million, right? To include me, to include this guy, and include me. So let me. Let me let me scoot back a little bit,
3: but uh, no, I'm so, really
2: on it. I'm not kidding. So, so three million Syrians have been put on this this terrorist list, and, and the way this works in the Middle East is, if if I'm a if he's a terrorist, then I'm automatically a terrorist because I'm his buddy, and if you know me, then you're a terrorist too, and it just goes that way. So it's 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 three degrees of separation. So Ube could it's it's like our. Uh, what do we call it, a lottery immigration system in the United States? You have one person come in, and it's like 1,000 people come in also, something that we've talked about in our, our, our you know, domestic politics uh, conversations. This 3 million
3: uh, yeah, Syrians seven. is, is 3.7. Yeah
2: it's, it, it's yeah, it's basically Idlib. It's basically saying that anybody who is a designated terrorist by the Assad regime automatically doesn't get to vote in the next elections, and their relatives don't get to vote. And you can start targeting them. And it's actually used as a disincentive to repopulate, or to bring back refugees into Syria, and put them into traditionally uh, Sunni-populated um, areas, where they had the majority, where they would actually vote against the Assad regime, the where they would do these things. So this, this whole thing is, is key. It's, it's not about the UN simply bringing refugees back. It's about the UN saying, you cannot have a list of three million terrorists.
3: Yeah, but and then the by UN extension, and so efficient in Syria. Oh yeah, yeah. I, exactly. I mean, what does, the,
0: what does it mean exactly. when the UN but, says you can't? Well,
2: that's the thing. The UN has put out. Is the US willing to
0: say you can? No, no,
2: no. We're, this is what we're going to do. We don't do. We don't do difficult, and we do easy wrong. You know, <laughs> we we don't do difficult. We do. It says sanction them. So when they come to the United States, they can't use their credit cards. Okay. Um, you know, let's let's uh, warn against chemical weapon use, but it's okay to do all these other things that the civilians are more afraid of. You kill more people with a with a barrel bomb than you do with a sarin gas attack because it's not a persistent chemical. Um, these types of things, right? So, so you have seven, se- 77 letters of condemnation from the UN Security Council resolution on Assad's use of unconventional weapons on civilians. Didn't stop a thing. Didn't stop one barrel bomb. So, so no. These are these are things that people can feel good about. And you know, the, my biggest criticism of the Obama administration is a Rolling Stone magazine with Obama on the cover. And it's 50 pages long. Every day celebrates one day. And if you look at how many civilians died in Syria, it's basically 50 pages. 10,000 civilians died for each page in that Rolling Stone magazine that covered the Obama presidency without ever mentioning Syria, without ever mentioning the Syria camp that's one of my criticisms with this new foreign policy, is you have transitional Americans in charge of a very serious foreign policy that has resulted in 500,000 deaths, and they're just looking to transition, being able to say, on my watch, we did this, and then pass it down the road. Th- these are not tangible steps that we're taking at all when it comes to this. And uh, you know it, it, it's frustrating. It's got to be very frustrating for the 3.2 million Syrians that are wondering what the world is going to do about a barrel bomb or about a rocket barrage from Russia on civilians to target 10,000 jihadists. And the argument can be made. I mean, the strategy was, let's move them all, let's let's have these UN guaranteed convoys to move them all to Idlib so we could kill it one day, so we could destroy it one day. And you literally can make the argument, well, that's where the three million terrorists ended up going. And it, it's, uh, it's it's if you just look at the language, it's they're playing chess. We're playing catch up and, and the Syrians are, are looking for a friend. And I don't know that, so they're going to make these deals. And hopefully that Turkey U.S. relationship you're talking about and hopefully your recommendations resonate with someone who's willing to do something. But I just see that transitional figures in U.S. government are looking to transition, having something under their belt that says they did something.
0: So, Bassem, what would be those tangible steps? I mean, when the US is talking now, especially the special envoy about a political solution being the only solution and not the military solution, what would be the tangible steps to have a political solution that doesn't exclude all those million, those three million people on, um, on the terrorist list, but also doesn't kill the three million people who are in Idlib?
3: I don't know. The, the simple answer.
0: Does, does the, the
3: U.S. Answer. know? But, no, I, I don't know. But I tell you something, indicators. Again, we talk about indicators and the trend. So again, the U.S. is talking about sanctioning, about putting more pressure on Assad, on allies, and so on and so forth. But what we saw in the last week, we saw that the Bahraini foreign minister came to Mualem and the regime and uh, shake hands with him and say, we want Syria to come back. So when we talk about Bahrain as a Bahrain that, under daily threat of Iran, and, some, and this guy, whatever his name, come to Syria, which is occupied by Iran, and say we need Syria to come back, it doesn't make sense. In Any math, any logic, it doesn't make sense. And Bahrain is allies of the United States. The, the fifth is, feet, is in Bahrain, whatever. So, so this message is counter everything the United States is doing. Number two, Jordan. They are pushing to open the border with Syria. They are crying um, that the United States stop funding uh, the UNRWA. At the same time, what they did in Zatari camp, which we have something like 150,000 Syrian refugees, the medical uh, treatment is going by um, Syrian American Sam, Syrian American Medical Association, which is American doctors, American equipment, American doctors for free. They are treating these people. The Jordanians say, Khalas. You finish SAMS, we don't need you anymore, leave. And the guys, they say, we are doing this a free service for you, Jordan. We are saving your money. As they said, no, it's enough. Again, we are talking about allies of the United States. We go to Turkey. Turkey deal with, with, uh, with the Russian on Idlib. It's very clear, and even in Astana, that the road between Turkey and Jordan transit should be open. That means you are giving Assad money and giving Hezbollah money and Iranian. you are empowering the project economically. So we are talking about the three close friends or allies to the United States in the last one week, what they are acting and what the United States is doing. It doesn't fit. So here the question that I have no answer to it. What the administration have to say for its own allies? Is it okay for you to work with Assad? Uh, some theories with the Arab, Arab groups that we were excluded from Astana, we were excluded from Geneva small group or Syrian small group, so the Arab voice should be back to the table and we should be part of the solution. And they have so much problem themselves to solve rather than solve Syrian problem. So they find out, let's try to reach out to Assad to convince him to be away from Iran, as if they forget for the last 17 years from the Assad time that Syria with Iran are twins. They are not allies the regimes, the two regimes, they are literally twins. That the amount of money, intelligence, infrastructure between these two regimes is, is beyond imagination. So to come a mature ideas from Arab leaders to say, let's just try again with Assad to split from Iran, doesn't make sense, he killed Hariri. He built nuclear um, reactor in Syria by help of Iran and uh, Korea. So do you think this kind of regime will say to Iran, good luck, I mean, for what? What they offer Bahrain, what can Bahrain offer to Syria? Nothing. So we have so much questions that we don't have an answer. What we have, the real things, if I see the United States, we have very clear area, the Jazeera region in Syria, SDF control area. If it will be the model for the new Syria, I think that will have a huge impact of the whole calculation because of the wealth it has the more we have balanced relation between Arab and the Kurds, more comprehensive engagement, ex- inclusive between the Arab and the Kurds, stability, modernization of that area. We are telling everybody, Habibi, we have model. You don't have to create for us a model, just normal people living together. If they miss it here, they miss a lot.
0: Okay, so be- before I ask Michael, but I have so many questions from what this <laughs> said. but Obey, I'd like to bring you back in on where do we stand today on stabilization? In the Northeast, uh, since I think you're the latest on the panel to have been in, in Syria, so where do you
1: stand today? Well, there's absolutely no stabilization projects going on in any part of Syria that is not under the Assad regime control. Um, in fact, international donors specifically um, tell their implementing partners in Northern Syria, you're not allowed to use any of these funds for stabilization reconstruction projects, uh, which is atrocious, because we now have an opportunity and parts of Syria that are not not under assault by any military force, whether it's the Assad regime or any of the other militaries that are present in Syria, to start rebuilding, to start reconstructing. These funds don't have to go to the Assad regime. Uh, A significant part of Syria still is, whether you want to use liberated or any other word, is not under the control of the Assad regime. And you can start reconstruction, you can start uh, providing stabilization funds. The problem is, is that there's no general consensus because Syria is no longer Syria. Um, what I mean, what any part, the parts of Syria that are under the control of the Assad regime are is essentially a rump state. Um, the area, the 55 kilometers around Al Tanf, is a de facto state. Uh, the Euphrates Shield area that's under the control of the Turkish military and its um, allied uh, Sunni Arab auxiliaries on the ground is functionally a state. Um, when I go into um, Azaz, I go in um, not with any, co- I don't receive a passport stamp. I go in under the, uh, by the authorization of the, from the governor of Gaziantep and Kilis. Um, so we, you have a new, the, the old uh, post-SECO's Syria is no longer there. And it's probably never going to go back to where it once was. The Russians' main position is that eventually they want the Assad regime's quote-unquote sovereignty to be restored throughout all of Syria. That's probably just not going to happen. And let's go, again, rewind the clock a little bit. Let's not forget that, right, if if today, if if the the objective of the United States and if the objective of the Russians is ultimately a counter-terrorism one in Syria, a very narrow objective, Let's not forget that when the Assad regime was in full control of the country, um, when the Assad regime was in control of Abu Kamal, when it was in control of Hasakah, that thousands of jihadi foreign fighters from 2005 to 2009 flowed into Iraq. And they were flying into Damascus Airport. They were being trucked into Hasakah, into Deir Zor on the Iraqi border. They were going into Mosul, they were going to Anbar, they're going to the Jazeera area. So you don't have a guarantee That if the Assad regime is in full control of its its borders in its entirety, that somehow that would provide a sustainable solution to transnational terror. So you have to go back then to, if your objective is counterterrorism, then what can the United States, Iran, Turkey, and Russia agree to in terms of a model for Syria where transnational terrorism can no longer find a safe haven? Given what we know about the Assad regime and its prior, uh, prior essentially, direct and indirect connections to transnational terrorism. I mean, look, folks, in the Middle East, alliances are very fluid. Um, allegiances are very fluid and malleable. I think that's something that many in Washington can you know, relate to. But... Um, is
0: why you're creating misanime, because we all know... Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So is there going to be a post-Westphalian grand bargain, grand agreement on Syria that puts Syria back together again? I highly doubt that. I think what's going to happen ultimately is that the only way to really determine the the outcome of Syria is going to be on who wins on the battlefield. How does the strategic balance of power shift? Does it shift towards Iran's objectives? Does it shift towards the Assad regime and Russia's objectives? does this, a new Sunni Arab proto-state supported by Turkey, does that become the the new normal in northern Syria, which it quickly is becoming? Um, when you speak to Syrians on the ground um, in these parts of Syria, the sectarian affiliation as, as Sunnis, as Sunni Arabs, is predominant. Um, when the Syrian passport is essentially worth nothing, what does it mean to be a Syrian anymore? So these are all things that for that foreign policymakers that the trump administration really has to take into account that ultimately defeating Daesh is just going to be the beginning in syria um and as we're looking at a situation where more and more troops by the way we don't exactly know how many american troops are stationed in syria we don't know the name or the locations of all the bases that american troops are functioning in syria so ultimately, here I think what we're looking at is that when we speak of a political solution, I mean, let's face it, talking points do not make a policy. The Obama administration talked of a political solution. The Trump administration is talking about a political solution in Syria. But ultimately, we just have a string of local ceasefires that have been sort of strung together. Um, and is that a sustainable? Is that sustainable in the future? I think ultimately, what's going to happen is a new, wider war, we're going to stumble into another war in Syria, whether for good or for bad. Um, and that's something that we really have to be very much cognizant of, that another wider war in Syria could very much be in the making.
2: So, to that point, real quick, and that's one of the arguments you hear from the National Security Council and others in the Department of Defense is, hey, yeah, yeah, all these little things you're talking about, the Iran land bridge to Iraq, yeah, we got it. Kitabi's uh, Blah and Ah having a U.S. M1A1 Abrams tank, no big deal. Uh, Qasem Soleimani on the battlefield, that's not a big deal because the bigger threat is what he's talking about, the the war, the coming war between Israel and Iran. And the argument is, yeah, that's coming because of all these other things we keep allowing to happen. That's why it makes it more likely that it's going to happen because all those little indicators and warnings that we've been talking about for, for going to seven years now are now leading you to say, well, we can't do anything about those little things because we've got this big thing that's coming. And it's, it seems to me like it's a sustainable. It's a, it's a, it's
0: a Actually, my next question to you is going mm-hmm. to be about Israel. So what is, what, I mean, um, Obeyan, before him, uh, Basan. they spoke that even if you have a Sunni identity and you have a Sunni population, but who's winning on the ground? And unfortunately, the regime is winning on the ground. Oh. Iran is winning on the ground. What are Israel's options now if it wants to avoid a confrontation with Russia, uh, which Israel has been trying to do since the incident? And but what what does this leave Israel
2: to do? Well, it's interesting that Israel is comfortable with the actors they know. They're, they're comfortable with Assad staying in position. They, they basically said that. Um, some are not, but Assad's the devil they know. And Israel has been very happy with the Russian non-response to its airstrikes in Syria. That all changes with the S-300s going into okay. the Assad forces. So, Israel now has to wonder what, what that means. And now Russia can say, hey, we're not going to shoot down your aircraft. We just gave them a capability to shoot down your aircraft. So it's not us, so we can maintain our relationship. And, and the language that we fail to exploit here is when Russia says it's as, their relationship with Israel as is as important as their one with Iran, while Netanyahu's in Moscow and an Israeli airstrike is taking place in Syria, sitting back custom Soleimani's Static infrastructure three years. So I think Israel's position is, is key here. And you even got it's interesting that you even have Lebanese Hezbollah saying it wasn't us that launched those rockets, it's IRGC Cruise Force guys in Syria. So there are all these interesting relationships. As you talk about the, the, the fluidity of, of, of alliances and players on the ground, nobody wants this war that's coming except for Iran. And Everyone's doing everything to stop it. When I say everyone's doing everything to stop it, Israel's doing everything to stop it. Russia doesn't want it. Assad's trying to just survive. and The United States is ignoring it. And I think that puts Israel in a position where they have to look. What I like about the Israeli position is that they will do it regardless of what the West is is recommending, what the West is doing. I I, I do like that. Because at the end of the day, you have, you have to do those things. You can't wait on the United States uh, that is so gun-shy now with everything we do, where any military action is automatically inflated to deploying 160,000 Americans into Iraq and overthrowing the regime and staying there for 14 years. Uh, that's not what military power looks like. You can have it be somewhere between 2,000, which is too low in Syria, 5,000, which is too low in Iraq to an actual capable 30,000 across the two countries with actual assets and intel and special ops exactly. and everything to do, to do these things. To do
0: what exactly?
2: To so go after the three American objectives. You're going to define the three American objectives in Iraq and Syria. It's to continue the oil flow in Iraq. It's to defeat ISIS anywhere in Iraq that it pops up. And it's to curb Iranian influence. In Syria, it's to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. is to defeat ISIS. And it's to curb Iranian influence. So when you look at military options, you, you literally have it being a third rail to talk about putting designated terrorist groups on the authorization use of military force legislation, the AUMF. Mm-hmm. It's okay to target Sunni terrorists, it's not okay to target Shia terrorists unless it's, it's uh, Harakat Ndejeba creeping up on Al-Tamf, or it's Kitab uh, Hezbollah moving towards Abu Kamal against American forces. We can attack them if they're threatening us, but we can't attack them when we see them building up the threat to attack us. And that's what we need to get away from. We got to stop treating Iran like we got to start treating Iran like a paper tiger. It is, and stop acting like it's something we cannot deal with. It doesn't mean 160,000 troops in Iran. It simply means we're going to shoot down. You have to now. You have to actually put an air defense capability in Iraq to shoot down Iranian missiles that are flying over Iraq to hit Syria, and you now have to put them in Iraq. To protect US bases when you have threats from Kitab Hezbollah, Asab Ahlul Haq, and Hadakat Nujaba, this is where we're at. So we actually, that's that's the military response shoot things down, punish people, put them back on the AUMF, sanction, discredit, make any part of their, anything they touch in the Iraqi government or the Iraqi economic sectors that Iran uses to fuel its activities in Syria toxic, make it to where. Politicians and leaders of institutions, because we have this thing where we just have to build up institutions to counter Iranian influence. We simply build up institutions to, to be co-opted by the Iranians.
3: I, and I, I, I tell you something just to, yes. add, to add what Mike was saying. I was, was going to, to
0: get to you on
3: actually on, on this, but are you? Yeah, yeah. Just a small well, example. If you, I could, could take back. ten more minutes, not just <laughs> to give you something from the real but life.
0: make a chart because I would like to re- ask just, you just a question last thing. We um,
3: come in here. Twenty-six last year, the. The Syria team, they were negotiating with the Russian and the Israeli de-escalating zone in Dara'am. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh,
3: that team at that time, they, they believe that United States is weak, doesn't have leverage, and they don't have stake in the game. And when the Israeli asked the Americans or the Russian that Hezbollah or iranian militia should be 65 kilometers or plus miles, I don't know exactly, away from the border from Jordan and Israel, the Americans say there's no way. They – we cannot do it. This is the American team official statement. They say, Do you want Hezbollah to go to Damascus? They will not accept it. So they 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 reject the idea. They say this is not realistic. Today with the new team, um, the Hezbollah and the Russian, they agree. I mean, maybe they will violate it, or already they have violated the deal, but at least on the paper, they say Americans are serious now. They are tough. So let's we don't want to have confrontation with the United States. I think the starting point where Michael was saying that. The team, whatever team in, in foreign policy, the more they feel they are strong, they are superpower, and they are the superpower, they can do a lot. And people really scare and fear from them. If they go to the game or they go to foreign policy to say we are weak, we don't want to have a risk, we don't want to do anything, they lose without doing anything. The, again, last year the my understanding of the policy that we don't want to have fight in Iraq and we want to stabilize Lebanon and we want to stabilize a little bit Syria in order not to have more people killed. The word stabilization they used in order to avoid any sanction on Lebanese army or any sanction on Lebanese party, like Hizb- Harakat Amal. They used it in order to avoid any designation of Hazab al Haq, who killed American soldiers officially, and they put it on the YouTube, we killed you, American soldiers. So they, they block all the things that naturally that United States should tell to these groups that we know you and you will be punished. Under stabilization. I hope this new team, they have a lot of tools. The, best, the most important thing for them, they should believe that United States is strong. It doesn't have to send its forces to that area. Uh, whenever United States take the position, people follow, EU follow, even if they don't like the policy, but they will follow. And that was a huge pressure. You can – I mean, Russia, Iran, it's not as strong as Soviet Union in the 70s. It cannot compare Russia and it has been destroyed under a huge pressure from the United States the, the the idea that number one they should feel that they are really strong they don't have to use the military weapons or military equipment or sending the US army to these areas but they should know exactly that they are really strong and the people will follow if they will become more flexible more sending weak messages they will fail even if they have very good intention okay so
0: I my last question to you before I open Or is actually you 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 mentioned, no, it's a question that he didn't answer despite talking long. No. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the Caesar syrian Civilian Protection Act of 2018. And you know that Russia has been promoting the reconstruction of Syria, that uh, the World Bank here has a couple of projects on reconstruction in Syria, that the uh, Gulf countries that I love bringing into the discussion, as you know, uh, are flirting with the Assad regime about the, this idea to actually use it as a leverage card. So w- first of all, what? why is this new bill significant? and second of all, where are we on reconstruction in, in Syria? And is- Two
3: things Russian they try to send to the world that we have a new model of solving civil crisis civil war crisis in Syria. So the West you fed in Afghanistan, you felt in Korea, you fell everywhere you destroy the countries and you left. We as a Russian we will come, we kill everybody, we have stabilized the regime and then we bring the refugees back and we need your money to do it. So basically, the Russians, they need the Western money to to, to send the message that our model of stabilizing the country has succeeded. Uh, They don't care much about the refugees. Uh, Iran doesn't like the refugees to come back. Don't forget, Syria is mainly Sunni countries. Iranian, they cannot control Syria with the majority of Sunni. Today, when you say 12 Syrian Syrian million are outside Syria, that means it's more 50-50 like Lebanon. So Russia is playing that game, that they want to legitimize asset, to say to the world, we succeed. We are, have this new model. That means in the future, if there would be any crisis, we have Russian model or American model, uh, and legitimizing assets and they need the money. The, the bill is very important because it's become low. U.S. laws. It's not become executive order or or treasury decisions to make executive order to sanction. To say any money goes to the Assad regime that's supporting his military act, communication act, uh, military act, or the area that has been co- is controlled by Russian or Iranian control, there will be no fund. And any person, entity, government work with the Assad regime or any of his partner or affiliation to rebuild that area will be sanctioned from the Plus, the, the central bank of Damascus, or Syria. So this is because this is the, the largest money laundering for Iranian money. It's huge. Which bank? Uh, Syrian central, central bank. bank. And the good thing about the bill that uh, when, when when the people were writing it, we make sure, as a Syrian, to say that the bill should have sunset. There should be parameters. So we know from the trend of the United States that the minute they put sanctions, there is no way to, to waive the sanctions. So we put some. We try to push them to put some indicators that, if there will be transitional governing body, if there will be detainees will be released, if Hezbollah or Iranian militia will leave, the sanction will automatically will be there. There's so much request from the president, on the secretary of defense, secretary of treasury, secretary of state, to write a reports about Iranian influence in Syria, about the money, and so on, and so forth. So now we have a bill, which is not anymore. Uh, can be waived out by any president or by any administration to use it against iranian and russian influence in syria the construction again the regime is trying to send he sent many delegation actually to dc itself to meet with the syrian american uh, people and rich people to tell them you are welcome to come back to syria to do some kind of investment with understanding don't talk about about any political reforms you accept the situation as it is we guarantee your money and that's it the Russians are trying to build their own business council. They are reaching to business community, Syrian business community in the world to say, come to Syria. We, as a Russian, we guarantee you, you will get your money back, you get the investment back. We suggested, as a Syrian, that the Syrian opposition politically has failed. And uh, they don't represent the people anymore. They become like Assad. They seven years ago, but they, could, they couldn't shed their blood. We don't have a new blood. Uh, military opposition has failed. And we are going to new steps, so we are proposing and trying to promote to have Syrian business council of wealthy Syrians who are willing to use their money to build the countries. I mean, you cannot ask U.S. or other country to invest in Syria, where the Syrian wealthy say it's, not, uh, it's risky to invest our own money. So we are trying to say the Syrian people, they should go to invest in their countries and encourage international community to go invest, but they will not be able to invest if the situation is as it is today. Um, So this will be Syrian national agenda, bigger than the opposition, bigger than the the regime itself. And we have real indicators that the situation on the ground is fit for coming back for serious investment, not political investment. Just quickly, that's the one thing in
2: the letter from Ambassador Jeffries and Rayburn that, that, that I liked, is that there will be no U.S. money to go towards reconstruction in Syria as well as those that have signed on as signatures for this, this agreement. And that's big because a, a, a uh, economy of uh, a shrinking $400 billion economy in Iran cannot fund it. A shrinking economy of $1.9 trillion in Russia cannot fund it. And it will give us leverage if we do it right. So the problem is the majority of these these, these uh, reconstruction contracting companies are already front companies for Lebanese Hezbollah, for, for Russia. So those are the things we have to vet to make sure that if any U.S. money comes at any point where we actually believe we're gaining leverage for it, that the contracts don't simply go to these groups, because we've seen that in Iraq time and time again, and it's already set up to work that way. And we didn't talk about China yet. China's doing that as well. So China can actually fuel the reconstruction and actually give everything Russia, Iran, and Assad wants, and we need to make sure that China knows that that would be a red line for the United States to fund this kind of thing if you're talking about sanctions things like that.
0: So Ube, if you don't have a comment on this issue, we can take yeah,
2: questions. yeah, let's, let's go to the people.
0: So uh, please raise your hand if you have a question. And I believe there are microphones to <clears> around. <throat> so you can go to the gentleman in <laughs> the motion. Oh, sure.
5: please,
0: please identify Yes, and please identify yourself.
5: Hi, thank you all. Um, my name is Logan Pauly. I'm a fellow at the Stimson Center, where I work on china syria relations. Um, I wanted to follow up on that last point. Um, I think reconstruction is a really interesting argument to bring up. Um, I've been talking with independent pro-Assad analysts in Idlib right now, and a lot of them have been talking about the Caesar um, Civilian Protection Act and have been mentioning that they think it's a little bit outdated, that it would have been relevant in 2013 or 2014. But um, after the Damascus International Trade Fair just happened last month from the 6th to the 15th, we see that America and EU countries aren't even being invited to discuss reconstruction in Syria. So with that being the case, we see countries like China, almost essentially only China, really taking the the full mast of running Syria's reconstruction or striking projects right now. Um, I also wanted to bring up the case of the other parts of the the Caesar Act um, and ask about your guys' perception on um, things that are not just sanctions. Sanctions were the biggest part, and I think that the Caesar Act does a lot of good in um, abiding by the, the Chemical Weapons Convention and doing things with the OPCW. But um, in section 302 of the Caesar Act, it also gives the the president an ability to conduct an independent assessment of um, the effectiveness and the risks of a no-fly zone, humanitarian corridors or safe zones, and then also military assistance to uh, to anti-Assad forces like the PKK that we have been doing. Um, I, I myself don't think that this would ever be a viable option, and that we wouldn't ever endorse such a measure. This harkens back to the the video of okay. um, of the senator at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that tried to ask um, about sanctioning a no-fly zone, not knowing it would go to war. Um, but
0: can you just leave some time for the others? Sorry, sorry. Right. I just
5: wanted to, to to ask about the viability of, of that as a uh, as a possible measure. I'm afraid so, that the president
3: think might about understand. about China, the regime. They sent many delegation to China to to buy the. The spare parts for the electrical uh, dams or electrical generators for the electricity. That was two years ago. And the Chinese say we are w- willing to sell you everything if you have a cash. We will not give you credit line. And the regime didn't have cash. This number indi- was one indicator. Second indicators that um, the, in the meeting between China and Arab leagues early this year, I think in March. The, the Chinese announced officially that they will sponsor something like $20 billion to, for investment in the Middle East, and they put for Syria $20 million. So from these two numbers, two figures, the regime tried to to say that China is on board. But when you say about U.S. market and Syrian market, and you have a Chinese company where they will come. Just media-wise. So There's oil reserves, though. That's always the- Euler Reserve is under American control, it's not under Russian. And for the corridors, and this just to tell you about Caesar bill. Caesar bill was three years ago, and it passed the House twice, and the Senate, they pass it right now. There's so much languages back to the two years ago, like the siege, like corridors, it has to do with the old uh, language. And by the way, the Assad regime is
1: still not in compliance of the, the deal that was reached with the United Nations and Russia in 2013 to verifiably Destroy this entire chemical weapons stockpile. <clears throat> International inspectors, the OPCW, still believe that the Assad regime maintains a continued covert chemical weapon production capability. Because they were only supposed to destroy the declared ones. Absolutely, the ones that were. And the fact that the Assad regime still maintains, whether it's a small amount or whether that amount is increasing, an underground chemical weapons production and research and development capability is extremely worrisome. And I don't think we can move forward to discussing reconstruction or any type of deal with the Assad regime without that fundamental point of the Chemical Weapons Agreement being fully um, abided by.
0: Okay,
4: so um, can give the... yeah, do you get the mic? Hi, uh, I'm Namo Abdullah with Rudow Media Network. So I have uh, one question on James to. Uh, Michael and Obey. So uh, about um, uh, James Jeffrey's recent remarks in the United Nations that Kurds must be included in future talks like the Geneva talks. Uh, Does that mean, Michael, the United States is on its way to recognize Kurdish political aspirations? And to Obey, with that, uh, can the United States deepen its relationship with SDF without further complicating its relationship with Turkey. Thanks. I'll
2: answer quickly. I believe it was simply the, the United States trying to hold on to an ally, to keep an ally from abandoning its hold, its hold um, responsibility. And in the part of counterinsurgency, you clear an area of ISIS, and then you hold it to keep ISIS from coming back. Uh, the YPG was starting to say, we're more concerned about what's going on in Afrin and Idlib, west of the Euphrates. And we'd rather do that than stay here, and we're going to start a grand bargain with the regime to be able to trade off the oil reserves that we control for some sort of recognition or some sort of leverage. So I think it was more of that than recognizing the actual Kurdish region, because we, we parse it out. We say we, we recognize this region, east of the Euphrates, but anybody west of the Euphrates, you're, you, can, you're, you can effectively be targeted by Russia, Turkey, and other proxies on the ground. So... I think it's more about we're about to lose an ally and lose everything we fought for for the last two years if we don't shore up our position and at least make them think that we're there with them, more so than recognizing this this region. I mean,
1: I think that the Geneva process is functionally dead. Um, And Aleppo was really its death knell, its final death knell. Although technically the Geneva process still is in existence on paper, but functionally, I think that ship has sailed. Now, the big question now is whether or not, how, or whether the U.S. has a policy in which it can balance a strategic partnership with Turkey when it comes to Syria, and with, uh, the, with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which Turkey views as essentially being the YPG, which is the Syrian version of the PKK um, terror organization that's recognized by Turkey as a terror entity, and is recognized also by the United States a terror entity. I mean, when I was in Iraq in 2007, 2008, the US and Turkey actually had a joint targeting cell um, where the US was supporting Turkish airstrikes against PKK terror elements that were in northern Iraq. But now the US is facing a major conundrum. On the hand, it has a strategic partnership with Turkey. In, uh, as Secretary uh, Mattis announced the other day, and now a joint training regimen between Turkish troops and American troops mm. that's go- that are going to be eventually deployed into the Northern Aleppo countryside near the strategic city of Manbij, a small town on the uh, west bank of the Euphrates River that essentially controls access into the Raqqa countryside. It was once held by the uh, by Daesh and uh, now is controlled by the Manbij Military Council, which many view is essentially as is a proxy force of the, the YPG. Frankly, I don't think Washington has a plan for that. I mean, this is part of the ad hoc Syria non-policy that this administration has inherited from the prior administration. As much as I am a critic of the Obama administration's Syria policy, not much is, is, has changed. Essentially Trump has inherited a mess from his predecessor and is essentially just doubling down. Um, so how can the United States balance a strategic partnership with Turkey when it comes to sustaining security and stabilization in Northern Syria with the ongoing relationship between the United States and the YPG in the eastern parts of Syria. Now we've heard from President Erdogan saying that this Menbij model, if it is successful between Turkey and the US, that he would like it implemented in the eastern part of the Euphrates River Valley. Now a a significant percentage of the territory that's controlled by the YPG in eastern Syria is majority Arab. So can there be some sort of deal where the YPG returns to the Kurdish majority enclaves in northeastern Syria Kamishli? And where they provide guarantees that they won't launch cross-border attacks um, into eastern Turkey, parts of Turkey that are a Kurdish majority. No one really, it's it's, again, it's an issue of U.S. policy stumbling along, trying to balance contravening policy objectives and two partners, that is on one hand a NATO ally, on the other hand a local force that U.S. special forces um, continue to support. Um, So I don't, Frankly, I don't think even Washington knows the way forward. Um, I think, at best, it's a series of tactical deals uh, that the US is trying to make to shore up the next six months. And there lies the problem with the talking points non-policy that uh, the administration currently um, has when
3: it comes to Syria.
0: But Sam, you have something
3: to add. And just quickly, you cannot solve Syria crisis we have so much pieces. When that puzzle of Syria crisis, the Kurdish puzzle, without giving the Kurds their rights, Syrian Kurds their rights, they are Syrian and the Kurds. that are We refuse to be Kurds and Syrian. They are Syrian, we are all Syrian, and then become Kurds. They have rights, like we have rights. They were uh, tortured by the regime for ni- from 1960s till now, more than any other group in Syria. This is fact. They have the right to have their own language, flags, tradition, holidays, which the regime banned it for them but didn't ban it for other groups. I think my understanding from the U.S. that the, the minute they will finish from ISIS in the coming, I think, weeks, short weeks, two weeks, three weeks, their their attitude toward that region will be a little bit changed, to be more can, balanced between Arab and the Kurds, to more empower the structure that already exists, to be inclusive more. Taking as much as fear from Turkey toward the, the, the structure it have, but Turkey will never be satisfied with whatever Kurdish aspiration have in Syria, and I think the minute the, Kur- the Turkish government start renegotiation with their own Kurdish people in Turkey, the things in Syria will be less tension for Turkey. It's, it has to do more with Turkey themselves rather than in
4: Syria.
0: General, let's take two questions. At the time
4: now and thank we'll you so much. Uh, my name is Sira Mohammed. I am representative of the Syrian Democratic Council to the United States. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you all, and I would like to ask Mr. Obey also uh, by. Uh, questions, you mentioned about your visiting to the area which is in Azaz or in Idlib, which is under the control of the Turkish uh, uh, there, and you are thinking that there are Sunni Arab there, and it will be a model if it will be good for Syria. Do you think this model, which has been in the Azaz or Jarablus or Afrin, which has been occupied recently in last March from Turkey and the jihadist group. Is it a model for the future of Syria? This is one question. Another question is, I mean, what do you think about the model which is in the northeast of Syria, which is in the uh, territory which is occupied by the SDF, the Allies of the United States? This model, which has been really worked for the coexistence with the brotherhood model, with the model of the, uh, the the equal of genders, and it is not only been asking for the state like a Kurdish state, which they some people they are asking for, or they are claiming they are like that. It is a model which united Syria, decentralised Syria. So I think Mr. Obaidi is ta- thinking that there is a states in Syria now, that means you are dividing Syria, and we don't want Syria to be divided. We want Syria to be a uh, united t- Syria through the diversity which is in Syria now. And this is what I, I'd like you to ask Mr. Uh, Bassam uh, Berbanti about uh, the vision of the future of Syria. What do you think, it, is it a s- decentralized or a centralized system? I'll, I'll start okay. because thank you so much, so <laughs> thank just you. Just
0: let's take another yeah, question sorry. and then we make a round of uh, answers. Please go ahead. Sure.
2: Please. I'm, I'm Peter Humphrey, an Intel analyst and a former diplomat. Um, I'm astonished that, that hundreds of, uh, I mean, dozens of countries have severed relations with Russia just over the bombing of hospitals and schools. I mean, That alone, that atrocity alone should be enough uh, to totally condemn Russia. So, so can we go to Russia and say, as was said to us so many times, if you break it, you fix it? and make Russia rebuild every hospital and every school in the country. Um, more importantly, what's the delay in bringing Russia up for war crimes? Uh, that's, you know, somebody said it back after the first hospital bombing, but now that we're on the 50th hospital bombing, you don't hear anything anymore. So, Just real quick, if, if we could just get the energy behind wanting to go, uh, wanting to go after Russia and sanction Russia for tweeting and for doing mis-time Facebook campaigns to transfer all that energy towards what you said, then we would actually have a united bipartisan front in the United States to go after Russia. That's, that's the goal, is to be able to do those things. We keep treating Russia like it's some sort of honest broker in this whole thing, but it's actually been the reason Assad is still in position and the reason Iran is able to move into Syria. We need to channel that in some sort of bipartisan way to condemn Russia for exactly that, for the use of white phosphorus, for the use of unconventional um, munitions on the civilian population—for for all those things—we uh, do we just got to transfer it. Uh, Anybody else? Ray, you
0: have
1: a- yeah, the hospital. Let me let me answer real quick the hospital issue. Um, when I was when I went down to the uh, Syrian-Turkish border, I had an opportunity to speak with a Syrian NGO that builds these underground hospitals. Not only do they have to build these underground hospitals in in caves and fortified bunkers, but they have to continually rebuild them because they're continuously targeted, whether it's the Assad regime or the Russian aircraft. Um, and, and, and frankly, it's, it's it's depressing to see. Um, and, <clears throat> and so much effort goes into just protecting basic health infrastructure throughout northern Syria, um, and even in parts of the Damascus suburbs when they were under control of the opposition. So that What this leads me to believe is that this was a purposeful military strategy by the Assad regime to destroy any type of infrastructure that infrastructure that made life viable in areas that were outside of the control of the Assad regime. And that's just contemptible. And the fact that you know these hospitals and medical centers are not outside, um, are, are not out of bounds of the war is absolutely horrific. And the fact that are still you know, brave Syrians and a Syrian-led um, effort to rebuild these underground hospitals, I think is really absolutely fantastic. And Unfortunately, they don't receive enough US support or even international donor support from the EU and from the Gulf states. And that's something that we have to keep an eye on. We we talk about the geopolitics of Syria. but we, We have to look at the basic health infrastructure of Syria, which has been destroyed, not just because of the war, but specifically because it was systematically targeted by
3: the Assad regime and by the Russian warplanes.
0: So,
3: with some war a few. Uh, it's war crime.
0: You want to answer her uh,
3: question? Yeah, yeah. See, now, uh, very nice meeting you here. I always hear that, <laughs> around, but I never meet you here. I, personally, I don't believe Syria will be central government again. I think it's the idea of being central government, which is very much Russian model, it doesn't exist or doesn't, rea- the reality doesn't exist. The people of Daraa, after the suffering from the regime, or thousands of barrel bombs in Idlib, or the massacres in Hama, or Homs, or Deir ez I don't see the people they are. Again, it's my feelings from my contact with the people. Uh, they don't feel that Damascus means much to them as central government. They want some kind of decentralization. They want to have their own life by themselves within the boundary of Syria, the big Syrian, and find a way to integrate with each others. Uh, the Russian model they don't believe in decentralization they believe in central government that have control on everything and this is the Russian they pushing again and again but again I will I will jump for the first question a little bit SDF is not ideal uh, the model in Jazeera is, is, is not ideal. We saw a lot of ethnic leanings against Arab we saw according to Human Rights Watch, we saw a lot of Arabs has been burned their houses kick out, and so on and so forth. So it wasn't that ideal that the people think, number one. Number two, that till today there is still communication between SDF and Assad regime for whatever things that people are not aware of. That doesn't give confidence too much about that project. Is it Kurdish project? Is Syrian project? Is national project? Decentralized project? Is it for whole region? Is it for your own region? A lot of confusions. That make the model a little bit weak. I understand from the American here that they try to protect that model. We back to the other bundle about Afrin. The minute Afrin was, have ethnic leanings against the curse in Afrin. We have ethnic leanings against Syrian and Gouda, Damascus. So we have, everybody is doing ethnic leanings to protect his own interest for political reasons. I mean, that's what I was, when we started, that everybody talks about all regional powers, but nobody talks about the Syrian, who are suffering every day from this fight. I don't think the model in Afrin or Euphority Shields or Manbij is perfect or ideal. We saw a lot of Islamists who are not represent Syrian daily-to-day life. We see a lot of corruption, a lot of bad things, but we saw this again in your Jazeera region. Same thing. I think we need time. We need stability in both areas to have the right choices. Today, everybody working without rationale. It's, It's a war zone. Everybody is under huge attack from ISIS or from Iran or from Nostra or whatever. So I need
1: to tell Well, I mean, all I can say is that it's a struggle for survival and it's very much a tribalized conflict in Syria. And at the end of the day, you have to look at how do you can you protect the Sunni Arab populace in Iraq? The, U- the U.S. worked with the Sunni Sahwa, with Sunni tribes, to divide them from the extremists, right? Al-Qaeda in Iraq went to these Sunni populace and told mm-hmm. them, we will protect you against uh, against the Iraqi uh, central government. We will protect you against Shia militia death squads. Any sustained counter-terrorism approach in Syria has to factor in the Sunni Arab populace. How can you separate the populace from the extremists? The extremists aren't just transnational terrorists. They're functioning as a guerrilla force. And the guerrilla force is very much localized. They tell the people, we are your protection. We are your protection against Shia death squads, where are your protection against the PKK terror elements? So any sustainable solution in the long term has to factor in the Sunni Arab populace and how can you protect them alongside other groups? Otherwise, we're just gonna go back, you can kill as many dashis, you can kill as many Al Qaeda extremists as you want. You're never going to solve the fundamental root, the cause
2: of the conflict in Syria in the long term. The one thing about the success in Iraq is that you empowered the Sunnis to push back against al-Qaeda and also defend their neighborhoods against the Shia militias. Strategy worked. At no time since the U.S. has been engaged in Iraq and Syria, since ISIS rolled in or since we started engaging Syria, have we had any sustained effort to build a Sunni force to reject Sunni terrorism and to protect areas from Shia militia attacks. And now we're starting it maybe in al Tanf, hopefully. Maybe we have the SDF because the argument is, well, they're not all YPG, they're also Sunni Arabs, but the command and control structure is YPG. Um, so so it, it needs to have a credible US strategy to empower Sunnis, to reject Sunni terrorism, and empower Syrians to protect their neighborhoods from both Shia and Sunni extremists.
0: So and uh, with that, I would like to thank you all for having been there, there and, and thank the panelists today. Thanks for being and, uh, see you the next time. Thank you for the. <laughs>